0: Request for Commits, a podcast that explores different perspectives in open source sustainability. On this show, we talk to people about the human side of code. We cover everything from community and governance to businesses and licensing. If you've ever wondered how open source projects get started, survive, die, or flourish, then you're going to love this show. I'm Nadia Ekba.
1: And I'm Michael Rogers.
0: On today's show, Michael and I talk with Andrew Despot, creator of Libraries.io, and Arvon Smith, who heads up open source data at GitHub. Andrew's project, Libraries.io, helps people discover and track open source libraries, which was informed by his work on GitHub Explore. Arvon works to make GitHub data more accessible to the public. Previously, he worked on science initiatives at GitHub and elsewhere, including a popular citizen science platform called Zooniverse.
1: Our focus on today's episode with Andrew and Arvon was around open source metrics, and how to interpret data around dependencies and usage. We talked about what we currently can and cannot measure in today's open source ecosystem.
0: We also got into individual project metrics. We talked with Andrew and Arvon about how we can measure success, what maintainers should be paying attention to, and whether stars really matter. So Andrew, let's start with you. Uh, what made you want to build library How was it informed by your GitHub Explorer experiences, if at all? So. I got
2: a little bit frustrated working at GitHub on the Explore stuff. It was made kind of deprioritized whilst I was there. And my approach with libraries was to rather than just build the same thing again outside of GitHub, was to use a different data source, which started at the package management level. And it turns out that's actually a really good source of metric data, especially when you start looking into dependencies, which just, if I had taken the approach of, let me look at GitHub repositories, would have gone down a very different path, I think.
1: Right. So, so tell me a little bit about that. So you, you pull out the whole dependency graph data. Um, do you go into the kind of deep dependencies, um, or do you sort of stay at, at more of a top layer of just kind of first order dependency data?
2: So for each project, it uh, only pulls out the uh, direct dependency. But as it picks up every project, because every time it finds anything that depends on anything else, it'll go investigate that as well. It ends up having the full dependency tree, but right now I don't have it stored in a way that makes it very easy to query in a transitive way. If that makes sense, I've been looking into putting the whole data set into Neo4j, like a graph database, to be able to do that easy transitive query and kind of to be able to give you the whole picture of any one library's dependencies and their transitive dependencies, but it's not quite at that point. But I do have all the data to be able to
1: do it. Interesting, okay. So you said that this is an, uh, a much more interesting way to go about this than the GitHub data. What's like something that you found when you started working with the dependency data that you never had uh, in GitHub, like Explorer or just do
2: the GitHub data? So GitHub stars don't really give you a good indication of actual usage. And GitHub download data is only really accessible from the if you're a maintainer of a project uh, rather than just someone who's looking at the project from from just like a, a regular browser's perspective. If you actually look at the dependency data and not just other libraries that depend on that particular library, but if you look at the whole ecosystem and how many say GitHub projects depend upon this particular Package, it gives you a fairly good idea of how many people are still using that, still need that thing to be around so their code continues to work. Uh, and that if there was a security vulnerability, say, you can see exactly how many projects may be affected. So you actually end up connecting the dots between, and I've only looked at um, GitHub data so far. I haven't got around to doing Bitbucket or kind of arbitrary Git repositories, but you can actually use package management data to connect the dots between GitHub repositories as well. So you can say, oh, well, given this GitHub repository, how many other uh, GitHub repositories depend on it through NPM or through RubyGems?
1: So it, it's, it's good to hear that stars are useless because I've, I've also thought that. Um, <laughs> that's been my, my assessment as well.
2: Yeah, I've been brewing it. Right okay, a long time uh over how you shouldn't judge a, a project by its github stars there's one particular project that's a great example of that uh it's called volkswagen and it uh, <laughs> it is a essentially yeah. a monkey patch for your ci to make sure it always passes and i think it's got something like 5000 github stars and it's maybe downloaded 50 times on npm it's <laughs> it has zero
3: usage wow
1: yeah, yeah, no, that's that's by Thomas Watson. It was a joke when when VW had that scandal where they were just passing all their tests. So he wrote a module called Volkswagen that just made all your tests pass no matter what. <laughs> it's brilliant, but um, yeah, utterly useless in terms of actual use.
2: Yeah, and if you actually look at the stars, and of course people have contributed to it, so even looking at like contributed data doesn't give you a good indication of actually is this is this a useful thing, a real thing, uh, and Should I care about it? I always look at GitHub stars as a way of it's kind of like a hack and use upvote or a Reddit upvote or a a Facebook like. It just means like, oh, that's neat. Rather than like, I'm actually using this or I used to use this five years ago. Uh, No one ever unstars anything either. Whereas if people stop using a dependency, you actually see the the amount of people that depend on a thing go
4: down. Uh, I think stars are an indication of attention at some point in time. And that is all we can say about them, right? Like, so if you look at stars versus page views on a given repo, it's literally just, you know, you could, they correlate very, very well. So, um, yeah, it's not, uh, you know, so in defense of stars, like, we shouldn't use them as this is what people are using, uh, but they do, they're a good measure of some, like, popularity, some metric. And I think that's exactly, Andrew, what you just said, like, consider it like a Facebook like. Or uh, or or something like that, but it's not. It's yeah. It's got very little to do with like how people are actually using something at any point in time.
2: Yeah, I saw uh, someone actually built a package manager. I think it was only a prototype, but it, I really hope it never actually became a thing. Um, where it would pick the right GitHub repository if you just gave it the the name rather than the owner and the name by the thing that had the most stars, which sounded like a terrible idea at the time and completely gameable. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that doesn't sound like a good idea.
1: (laughs) So uh, you you mentioned something interesting, which was, you know, you can understand how people use it in in terms of just it being dependent on. I I know, Arfon like, recently, uh, you, like, GitHub did this new BigQuery thing, um, and one of the the results is that you can do regexes on the actual file content of a lot of this stuff, so you can start to look at which methods of a module people might use or how they might use it. Um, Could you get into that a little bit?
4: Yeah. um, Yeah. So I think, uh, so just to kind of very brief refresh the, you know, the, the, the data that we um, um, put into BigQuery is basically uh, not only the sort of event data that comes out of the GitHub API, which is just, you know, something happened on this public repo. um, And that's what the GitHub archive have been collecting for a long time. This is actually in addition to that, the, the contents of the files and all the paths of the files. Uh, for about 2.8 million uh, repos. So anything with an open source license on GitHub basically that's in a, that's in a public repo. Um, and so um, yeah, so that allows you to do things like, you know, if there's a particularly uh, you know, uh, maybe a method call um, in your public API that you don't you know, that you want to try and measure the use of, then you can now actually go and look for people using that uh, explicitly. Uh, And so um, currently, uh, like regex, like really complex kind of regex stuff um, on GitHub searches is pretty hard. In fact, I'm not sure you can do a regex query on GitHub search. Um, And so that's one of the strengths of BigQuery that you can can actually construct these really quite complex, uh, expensive queries. But then, of course, that gets kind of distributed across uh, the the big query framework, so it comes back in a kind of reasonable amount of time. So for me, I think the exciting thing about that, I, th- I think that's really complementary to things like libraries um, that l- go and look at you know package managers. Uh, that's useful, um, uh, incredibly useful. But I think you know, number one, not every language has uh, a kind of strong convention for the package management that they use. Uh, unfortunately, I think some of us forget that. Um, I think we're very fortunate in, you know, sort of uh, Ruby and uh, JavaScript land that you know there's really really good conventions there, which are really useful. Um, so using dependencies is is great, um, but for those cases where that isn't, uh, you know, that isn't an option, you can now actually go and look for you know telltale signs of your of your library being used, and maybe that's because of an import statement or an actual or an actual method call. Um, yeah,
2: yeah, for languages like C, that's the pretty much the only way to do it is there's right there's just no convention there other than the language itself right and then for some other package managers you actually have to execute the file to be able to uh work out the things that it depends upon um which i'm avoiding doing because i don't really want to run other people's code just arbitrarily
1: Well, in the Node.js project, we've been trying forever to really figure out, you know, how are people using some of these methods? Um, Because if we want to, say, deprecate something, we'd really like to know how many people are using that in the wild and and what level of um, (laughs) level to which it's dependent on. Um, But, you know, we We've had several projects where we're trying to, you know, pull all of the actual sources out of NPM and, and you know, create some kind of parse graph and then figure out how that gets used and da-da-da. Um, and it's just such a big undertaking that it hasn't really happened. And then, you know, when this, uh, when this BigQuery stuff got released, we were like, oh, my God, like, how, how far can we get with a regex
4: to figure out <laughs> how some of this stuff is used? Because that'd be really useful. Yeah, it kind of makes me sad that we've made everyone write crazy regexes, but sorry about that. But hopefully that'll be useful. <laughs> like, it's, it's uh, you know, uh, hopefully some, uh, a bunch of good stuff can be done. Uh, people are going to have to level up their regex skills, I think.
0: I'm curious just for people who are newer to metrics World, um, why, do you, why should they care, to be blunt, about this data set being open and being on BigQuery? Um, what are some things that you expect the world to be able to do with this data, um, even outside of, you know, people like Michael with Node, but policymakers or researchers or anyone else?
4: One of the things I think is incredibly difficult right now um, for some people is to measure how much people are using their stuff. Uh, and, you know, uh, for 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 maybe a maintainer of, you know, an open source project, um, maybe that's not a huge problem because maybe you can go and look at things like libraries and see uh, see, you know, how many people are including your, your library as a dependency, or maybe, you know, you can just uh, see, you know, how many forks and stars you've got of your project on GitHub. But I think um, there are some some producers of software where actually reporting these numbers is incredibly important. And uh, Nadia, you mentioned researchers there, you know, if I get money uh, as an academic researcher from a federal agency like the National Science Foundation or the uh, National Institute of Health, one of the really Important things about um, uh, um, kind of r- getting money from these funders is you need to be able to report the kind of impact of your work. And it, it's currently kind of tough to do um, if you have your software only on GitHub and you don't have any other way of measuring, measuring when people kind of use the library. It's, you, you don't have any direct ways of doing that. Um, other than just looking at the the graphs that you have as the as the owner of the software on github so I'm excited about the possibility of people being able to just construct queries to go and look of course only open source public stuff is in this big query data set, but I think it it offers uh, at least a place where people can can uh, can go and try and get some further insight into into usage so yeah i think it's I think it's actually a hard problem to solve i, I know of Um, There are some environments, I'm trying to think of uh, some big, um, like, large institutional, um, like, compute facilities, big HPC centers. Um, People have done some work making it, um, like, doing some reporting on when something's being installed or run. And actually, Homebrew, I think, have started doing that recently as well, starting Mm -hmm. to capture these metrics. Because it's really tough to know, you know, like, not everything that people produce is open source. So it's not even clear that everything's out there and measurable and available. So you need it's really it's really tough if you need good numbers to actually say who's using my stuff, where are they? Uh, and there's lots of very legitimate privacy concerns for collecting all of that data. Um, so it's yeah, it's a hard problem.
0: So for you coming from the academia world, have you gotten requests from people from scientific community around using this type of data? Did those experiences help inform the genesis of this project at all?
4: Yeah, a little bit. Um so um very very early on in uh in uh, when I joined GitHub, uh, I got some inquiries from people saying we we'd love to get really really rich metrics on like how much stuff is being downloaded, where people are downloading from and like it just just the stuff that as a as a, you know, if you had to report and you wanted really rich metrics then then you would be, you know, all the stuff you would want. And and some of that um some of those data requests we just can't serve uh, uh, in a in a in a sort of uh, responsible fashion. I don't think, like you know, we there's no way we we can tell you uh, you know the username of every GitHub user of your of your software. That would be a, like a gross a gross violation of uh, you know users' privacy uh, on our part. So there are things that we just can't do. Uh, the other thing is, and I think this is a kind of a pretty uh, sane. Sort of standpoint for us to take you know we, we we take very seriously um user support uh and so if if somebody comes to me with a data request it may be you know uh ethically and possible for me to service that and you know it it might be technically possible for me to service that but if it takes two weeks of my time to pull that data then we're not going to help them with that problem and that's because. We kind of believe that everybody, you know, we should be able to service a thousand requests that are coming like that. We should be able to give uniformly the same level of quality support service to people. And so we generally try and avoid doing like special favors, if that makes sense, in terms of pulling data. And so this is why, you know, making it a self-service thing, getting more data out into the community, making it possible for people to answer their own questions is a much more scalable approach to this problem. Um, so I think the next step uh, for me personally, uh, with this data being published, is to start to kind of show some examples of how it can be used to answer common common support questions that we see. Um, I think that's kind of an, uh, the obvious next step from my from my standpoint.
1: And Andrew, I mean, for you, you know, you're you're in the position where you're actually taking a bunch of public data that's out there in all these different packaging ecosystems, um, and then kind of mashing it together. So you're like your own customer for this data. What what are some of the interesting things that you've been like looking at? Um, What are some of the most interesting questions that you've been able to answer?
2: I didn't unfortunately didn't have access to the BigQuery any earlier, so I've been collecting it manually via the GitHub API for the past year and a bit, which uh, takes a lot longer, but also picks up all of the repositories that don't have a license, which I guess often decided it's probably best not to put people's code out if they have not given permission to do that some of the things that i've been able to pull out have been quite interesting is looking at not only the usage of package managers across different repositories but the amount of repositories that use more than one package manager or that use uh say kind of like bower and npm or ruby gems and npm and then looking at the total counts of those usages as well as the the number of lock files, which I found really interesting. Coming from a time working with uh, Rails before Bundler was incredibly painful, sharing projects or coming back to projects and trying to reinstall the set of dependencies that all worked, given the transitive dependencies that move around all the time with new versions. Uh, and it looks like the Ruby community is pretty much for every gem file, there is a gemfile.lock. Whereas for the node community, there's maybe kind of 5, 10,000 uh, shrink wrap files on that I've found on uh, GitHub on public projects compared to the kind of 900,000 package Jsons, which in the short term won't be a problem, but I, it could potentially cause node projects to be very hard to kind of bring back to life if they've not been. Uh, used in over a year say because trying to rebuild that transitive dependency graph may be impossible or it may be really easy it's hard to know uh, but it's quite interesting to look at how different communities take their kind of like how reproducible can i make my software
0: i think we're heading into a break right now um when we come back we'll talk about the open source ecosystem.
5: Hey everyone, Adam Stachowiak here, Editor-in-Chief of ChangeLog. And I want to tell you about our cloud server of choice, Linode.com. Head to Linode.com slash RFC. Get an SSE server running in seconds. Plan started just 10 bucks a month. And when I say our cloud server of choice, what I mean is that all of ChangeLog is hosted on Linode. Everything we do at ChangeLog.com is on a Linode server What I'd like you to do is go to linode.com slash RFC, pick a plan, pick a distro, pick a location, and start your server today. Use our promo code RFC20 for a $20 credit. linode.com slash RFC.
0: And we're back with Andrew from Libraries.io and Arvon from GitHub. Um, In this segment, I want to talk about sort of the broader open source ecosystem um, and the types of metrics that are and aren't available to people, Um, because I've heard a lot of confusion just sort of about like, well, what can we measure? What is being measured right now? And I think both of you together probably have a good handle on that. Um, I want to start with talking about GitHub data, since I was mentioned earlier um, around download data and stars and things like that. Are there are there any, any sort of like myths that you want to address around the types of things that GitHub actually does measure or doesn't measure?
4: Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> I don't know what myths there might be. So I, I'm, I'm kind of curious. I mean, I would love to hear um, yeah. things that you think of, that you've heard that you would love to know if are for true. Um, I'd be happy to, kind. Of, I, I don't know of, any kind of, of uh, any kind of whisperings of what GitHub might be doing. So happy to respond to questions.
0: I hear a lot around just um, download data and whether GitHub actually has the data and isn't sharing enough of it. um, Why not use download data in addition to stars as something that people can see?
4: Sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I mean, so there is a uh, difference between what you as a project owner can see about a GitHub project and uh, you as a potential user of that. Software, uh, so there are there are graphs on the uh, that the, you know have things like a uh, number of clones of the software, um, which is I think a good a good metric. Um, there are graphs for uh, showing um, how many page views your project got actually, so like a mini Google Analytics. Uh, and so anybody who owns a GitHub repository um, can see those. Can see those graphs. Uh, they're not exposed to the general public, and uh, I would like them to be. I think they're useful. Um, I think we were kind of cautious initially when rolling those out, thinking that was kind of information that is something maybe that's only relevant or appropriate for the repository owner to see. But I don't know. I, I don't. I don't have. I, I think that data is generally useful um, for people. Um, to be able to see if there, Andrew you mentioned before, just the idea that you know, you there's a there's a package manager that tries to suggest the correct you know GitHub repository based on you know just a you know just a name, uh, and it does that based on stars. You know, that's that's not great, um, but at the same time, you know when you when you are looking for a piece of software to use, if it has a bunch of forks and a bunch of stars and a bunch of contributors, then that feels that that like that helps you inform your decision about what to use, even if you're, even if you haven't even looked at the code yet, right? You're sort of right. well, personally. I use that information um, to help inform my decision.
2: I seem to remember the metrics weren't exposed because of some of the referrer data potentially leaking, kind of people's internal CI systems. That's the only thing I remember. Uh, about that. Yeah,
4: that I mean that might be possible. I mean, I don't. I'm not hugely familiar with exactly why the data isn't exposed right now. Um, You know, I mean, we definitely, yeah, I think it's important to remember that, you know, we take user privacy very seriously. And so the thing is here, like you want to be on the right side of people's expectations of privacy. Um, You know, there are things that GitHub could do that would surprise people and not in a good way. And we don't want that to happen. And so, you know, you're always going to see us on the side of, you know, reducing the, scope of who could see a particular thing. That said, I think you know consumption metrics fork events, we used to expose downloads. I, I know why, I think one reason we don't expose downloads anymore is we actually just changed the way that we captured that metric and it's not captured in a way that is designed to be served through like a production service. Like it's in our analytics pipeline, but it's not in a place where we could build an API around it. It's just not performant enough. To build those kind of endpoints, so I think um you know there, yeah, so I mean, we do you know we we capture more information than we expose, but that's just like that's just a routine part of running you know a web application and uh, having a good engineering culture around measuring lots of things. Um, the decision about what to further expose to in you know the broad like open source community or you know the the public at large is largely one based on, you know, making sure that we get our, uh, you know, that we're in line with people's expectations of privacy, but also just, you know, based on user feedback. So if the stuff that you would like to see presented more clearly, uh, you should definitely get in touch with us about that because we are responsive to, um, you know, the, the you know, things that come up as common kind of uh, feature requests that, that that's, that's a good way of giving us feedback.
1: I, I think also like any, any metric has to be qual- like qualified, right? Like there's a lot of this talk about stars, right? Is that stars like, is not an indication of quality it's an indication of you know popularity at a point in time like you said um people take it as that because the only data that they have right Right. um an example is like in in node.js right like we we have we have we have metrics for um which operating system people are using and so we we always put out two data points and one is um the the operating systems that have pulled downloads of node either the tarballs or the or the installers of of some kind Um, and then we also have the actual um, market share for the Node.js website, visitors to the website, and, and those are like two ends of a very large spectrum in terms of like machines that are that are running Node and people that are using Node. Um, and so, you know, one metric that is huge on people end is Windows and incredibly small on, on actual computer end is, is Windows, right? Um, so we can, but we do a lot to qualify those before we put them out to like set people's expectations about them.
4: Yeah and there's I mean the I mean so there's a another thing I mean so you see um I think pi- the Python package index has a similar um like a badge you can put on your profile and and you see this um people will put it you know number of downloads last month from the Python package index and it's exactly the same problem like it will be for even quite it for a fast moving project where they're getting doing like lots of CI builds um it might be you know, it might be 50,000 downloads last month or something. And you're like, whoa, that's crazy. And then, yet, actually, there's no, they've got no one like that many users. Um, it's actually the CI tools that are responsible for most of those
1: yeah the, the problem with download metrics on packages too is that you you also get into the dependency graph stuff right so right. you know like 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 down, downloads are are really good at looking at like the difference in popularity between something like say Dash and request right like they're both very popular but but the difference in downloads gives you some kind of indication of the difference in there but there's also like a dependency of request that's only depended on by three other packages that has amazing download numbers because it's dependent on by request, right?
2: Yeah, I have one of those. uh, Base 62 is, I don't think there are many projects that use it, but it gets like one and a half million downloads a month because React transitively depends upon it. (laughs) Uh, So it's put down by everyone all the time, but it never changes, it's never really used, and lots of people re-implement it themselves.
1: Oh, that's funny. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of packages like that. I mean, like the, the whole left pad debacle, right? Was like people did not know that this was used by a thing that used a thing that used a thing. It wasn't that popular of like a, a first order dependency. It just happened to be in the graph of a couple really popular things.
2: That's one reason why I, I haven't started pull download stats for libraries because you can't compare across different package managers either because the client may cache really aggressively. Uh, RubyGems really aggressively caches every package whereas if people are kind of blasting away their node modules folder whenever they want to reinstall things then the numbers you can't even try to compare them across different package managers so if you're looking for i want to find the best library to work with redis then download counts just muddy the waters really
1: I think a lot of the, the metrics fall into that, though. Like when you start looking at them across uh, ecosystems, they really don't match up. Um, I, I, like, the, like the one that I think of comparing uh, a lot is like Go and NPM, right? And, and GoDoc is like actually like a documentation resource for it's not really a package manager, um, but people essentially use the index of it as an as indication of the count of total packages. But that, that's really like, you know, about four times what the actual unique packages are. Uh, which is an interesting way to go. And it's one thing that just doesn't map up with like the way that NPM or PyPy do it. Not that it's like invalid, it's just measuring something different, right?
2: Yeah, the Go Package Manager is is slightly strange because it's so distributed. It's just give it a URL and that is the package that it will install. So basically every nested file inside that package could be considered to be a separate thing because it's just a URL that points to a file of the internet uh, as opposed to something that has been explicitly published as a package manager to a repository somewhere.
1: Well, and like, I'd I like to get into the human side of this too, right? So, you, you mentioned this a little bit earlier when you were talking about the, the difference between uh, NPM and Ruby in terms of locking down your dependencies, and what, and like, that's now, you know, it's not enforced by the package manager. It's just now a cultural norm to use Bundler, and, and it's not an NPM. Um, are there some other kind of like people differences that you see, um, say, between Go and NPM because of those huge differences, or, or any other package manager for that matter?
2: I've tried not to look too much into the people yet, uh, partly because I didn't want to end up pulling a lot of data that could be used by recruiters uh, and make libraries a source of <laughs> kind of horrible data that would abuse people's privacy. And well, I, I, I didn't mean like individuals; I meant like culturally, like more more than the actual
1: like. Cre- no, I didn't mean like be creepy. Uh, and <laughs> pull data about people.
2: I've been looking into this one side There's been been up to all kinds of horrible things. Uh, Nothing springs to mind. I guess you can look at kind of the average number of packages that uh, a developer in a particular um, language or package manager would potentially publish more uh, or the size of the the kind of different packages. Node obviously tends towards smaller things. or a lot more smaller things and there's still some big projects as well uh but it's a bit more spread around whereas something like java tends to have really large uh packages that will do a lot of things um but i haven't i haven't done too much in comparing the different package managers from that perspective because it felt like as you say it, it you don't get much mileage from actually going like what's this thing compared to this thing it's much better to kind of look at what packages can we can we kind of highlight as interesting or important within a particular package matcher and see if we can do something to support those and the people behind them so looking at kind of who are the key people inside a community and then are they kind of well supported what can we do to to encourage or to help them out more um, as opposed to kind of trying to compare people across different languages uh, i don't you definitely see a, a certain amount of people who live in more than one language as well. It's not often that there's uh, people that are just only doing one particular language
0: I'm curious whether there's i don't know a whole lot about this, but if there's any way to standardize um like how package managers work across languages or um or just like standardized behavior somehow. Cause I I just sort of think for people that are like coming from this from outside of open source, um, but are really curious of like, for example, like what are the like most dependent on uh libraries that we should be looking at and trying to support those people or whatever. Um it's like it seems like it's just really hard to count or like every language is different, every package manager is different.
2: Yeah, I've standardized As much as possible with libraries, the only way I could possibly collect so many things is to kind of go. Let's treat every package manager as basically the same, and if they don't have a particular feature, then that's just null for that particular package manager. Mm -hmm. And as long as you don't kind of if you ignore the clients and the way the clients install things, and just look at the central repositories that are storing essentially names of tables and versions, then it's fairly easy to compare across them as when there is a central repository things like bower and go are a little bit more tricky because they don't have that you end up going like well we'll we'll assume the git the github repo is the central repository for uh for this package manager uh which for bower it is, but for go it's kind of spread all over the internet and there's not it's mostly github but there is things all over the place uh but you can then kind of go okay well for within a given package manager show me the things that are highly depended on but only have one contributor or have no license which is easy to kind of pull out and go but then order by the number of people that depend on it or the number of releases that it's had to try and find the potential problems or the like the superstars inside of that particular community
1: Right. I I can see you kind of standardizing the data and some of the people work, but the the actual technology uh, or even the encapsulation, you eventually hit um, the barrier of the the actual module system itself. Right. Like one of the reasons why Node is really good at this is because NPM was built and the Node module system was essentially rewritten in order to work better for NPM and better for packaging. Um, And so a lot of the, the the enablement of these small modules is that you, you know, two modules can depend on two conflicting versions of the same module, which you can't do if you have kind of a global namespace around the module system, which is the problem in, in Python, for instance. And so there's a general trend, I think, just towards everything getting smaller and packages getting smaller. But some module systems like actually don't support that very well. And you and you hit kind of a bottleneck there.
2: Yeah, I, I don't think there are many. Uh other package managers other than NPM that allow you to run multiple versions of a package at the same time. Um, And partly because of the danger of doing that, that you introduce potentially really subtle bugs in the process. Uh, But most of the package managers and the languages, at least that I have any experience with, will load the thing into a global namespace uh, or the resolver will, will make sure that it either resolves correctly to only have one particular version of a thing, or it will just throw its hand up and go, I can't resolve this dependency tree.
1: Well, yeah, no, it's it's important to note that that's not part of npm. That's part of Node, right? Like Node's resolution semantics enable you to do that. Um, it's not actually in npm. npm is just you know the vehicle by which these things get published and and put together. Um, yeah, and 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 yeah, and I think you know there's been valiant efforts to make like an installer and an npm like thing in in Python, um, and they they eventually hit this problem where you actually need to change out the module system a bit.
2: Yeah, I made a shim for for Ruby gems once that. Essentially, did that and it made a, a module of the name and the version, and then kind of hijacked the require in Ruby. It was a fun little experiment, but ends up being uh, you're just fighting against everything else that already exists in a community. So, you kind of want to get in early before a community really gets going and starts building things before, because once all that code is there, it's really hard to change.
1: In, in that vein, have you seen any changes across these module systems as, they, as they've gone along? Have any, you know, really spiked in popularity or, or, or fallen? Like, are there changes that actually happen in these ecosystems once they get established?
2: Not so much. Uh, Elixir are making a few small changes, but it's more around kind of how they lock down their dependencies. But it's usually kind of once there's a few hundred packages And often it's because I guess there's just not many maintainers that are actually working directly on the package managers. Often they're kind of completely overwhelmed anyway to be able to to keep up and kind of be forward thinking with a lot of this stuff. And I get the feeling that a lot of people are building their package manager for the first time and kind of don't really learn the lessons of previous package managers like CPAN and Perl solved almost Mm -hmm. every problem a long time ago and <laughs> most of pitch <laughs> <them teacher laughs> managers go around and eventually kind of run into the same problems and solve the same things over again
0: <laughs> related to that um, I'm curious for both Andrew and Arvon um, when we talked about of you know looking at stars versus looking at downloads and looking at projects that are trending um, or popular versus ones that are actually being used um, for someone who's trying to, you know, look through available projects and figure out which ones they should be using, how should they balance those two ideas? Um, because it sounds like, you know, once an ecosystem gets established, then nothing really changes a whole lot. So you could make the argument that just because a lot of people are using a certain project doesn't mean that you should also be using them. Um, so you could also encourage like a different kind of behavior. Um, whereas what, if you're telling people only to look at the popular ones, then that encourages behavior of, you know, doing. I don't know, maybe it's not the best project. Um, so how do you balance, like, should we be looking at, like, which one is trending or new or flashy versus, like, something that is older and, but everybody is using?
2: Yes, tricky one. I've been kind of intentionally avoiding highlighting the new shiny things in package managers for the, for the moment and kind of not doing any uh, newsletters of here are the latest and greatest things that have been published, because, well, I think it's, it mirrors my approach to software at the moment, which is to focus on actually shipping like, useful things for, mm. to solve a problem as opposed to following whatever the latest technology is. Uh, mm. But that doesn't always, that's, that's just my point of view, rather than there are lots of people who are looking for employment and want to be able to kind of keep on top of whatever is currently like the most likely to get them a job which is a very different kind of view of what should I look at? What should I use?
0: Something I really struggle with is software in general, um, where like you often hear people saying like, oh, this project should just die because it's not following modern development practices um, or it's just kind of hopeless and we should just focus on whatever is new. Um, and I think it's because it's, you know, comparatively easier to do that with software infrastructure than it is like physical infrastructure. Um, They can kind of just like throw something away. But um, there's a part of me that's also like, well, maybe we should like reinvest in things that are older, but that everybody is still using. Yeah. And
2: sometimes it's a case of people very loudly saying, I'm not going to use this anymore. Uh, Whereas there are a number of people that are just using it and not telling anyone, kind of like just getting on Mm -hmm. what they're doing. Mm -hmm. They still require that stuff. And often they, you see, kind of companies will have their own private fork or they'll just keep their internal changes. And improvements and never contribute them back because they're just solving their own particular problem yeah right and i
4: i actually think this is one of the things where i think conventions uh can really help and i still think uh, i still recommend uh, rails to people who are getting into web development because you know, when you do rails new comes with, you know, uh, an opinion uh, on, you know, what your web server should be, what your testing framework should be, what JavaScript libraries you should use. And there's a set of reasonable norms that are, you know, the the current maybe flavor or opinion of the core Rails team, but that's valuable. If you don't know better, then actually picking what they recommend is completely fine. Like it's not going to trip you up. Um, I relatively recently, um, started doing some node stuff and I wanted to find a testing framework to just write, I just wanted to write some tests, right. And I, I like, I ended up going through about six in about five hours. And, uh, it seemed by my, by my kind of assessment of what was going on, the, the community was moving so quickly, like three of the frameworks I used were all written by the same person and um they they clearly changed their opinion and had a preference about the way that they were going to now work but i literally couldn't get uh it wasn't a very satisfactory experience because things were moving so fast um and and you know that i consider myself reasonably technical and pretty good at using github hopefully uh, so and i and i found it hard to find a good sane set of kind of defaults and so um i don't know yeah i think i think finding finding the right thing it,
2: it's very similar in the browser at the moment it's It's hard to know like is this library the right thing anymore? I find myself going to uh and I use dot com to work out like right is yes. this mirroring an API that now is a standard or has it moved on because the browser's being evergreen makes everything really hard to yeah and kind if of, you can't freeze yeah. anything in time anymore with anything that's delivered to a browser because Chrome is updating every day almost
4: yeah so i don't know i think picking the right technology i mean the other thing is if you actually went out stick your neck out and say you should use these things then somebody's obviously going to shout at you on the internet and say you're an idiot you should use this thing so i mean i think it's hard for the individual to um have a strong kind of preference and be public about that um so yeah i think it's i i think it's an unsolved an unsolved problem i think well the the
1: scary thing to me is that they're there is no correlation that I can find between the health of a project and the popularity of a project. Yes. So it's, it's totally fine if it's not the coolest thing, but people are still working on it and it's still maintained. Um, but like, you know, things actually die off and the maintainer leaves and it's still popular and still out there and still being heavily used. Um, and because it's that thing that people find. But like, as you said, like that maintainer already moved on to a new project, like didn't hand it over to anybody, has a new testing framework that they're working on, don't really care about this thing. Um, and so we don't have a great way to like surface that data, or to just uh, embed into the culture, like when you're looking for something, look for you know health and what does health mean to a project?
0: And making that argument to someone that even if a project is like they might not care about the health because they're like, well, it's popular and everyone's using it. Um, I struggle with sort of like, well, what is the good argument for saying like you should care about this to a user?
2: Yeah, it's a very long term thing as well, isn't it? Because if you get an instant result and you can ship it and be done, and you're like, ah, that's fine. I don't need to come back and look at this again. Whereas then six months, a year's time, you come, you might come back to it and be like, "Oh, I wish I didn't do this." But <laughs> you have to be quite forward-thinking, especially as a beginner. That can be something that you just don't consider uh, the long-term implications of bit rot on your software.
4: Mm. Yeah, there was, there was a. I, I feel like there was a thing um, relatively recently on Hacker News, like uh, uh, commiserations. You've now got a popular open-source project or something like that, um, and it was just this kind of like sort of really well articulated kind of overview of so you publish something on GitHub. uh, Now a bunch of people are using it. And now you've got the overhead of maintaining it for all of these people that maybe you don't really want to help. And I think and I think, um, you know, for me, that's just a good kind of demonstration of, you know, lots of people publish open source uh, code. And they're doing that because that's just normal. Or maybe they're doing that because that's the free side of GitHub, or whatever the reason is. They're doing that, or that, and they're solving probably their own personal problem, right? Like they're they're working on something because they're trying to work on. They're trying to solve a problem for themselves. If that then happens to become incredibly popular because that resonates, that's a useful thing, and lots of people want to use it. There's no, you know, there there was no, there's no contract uh, of you know, it's my job now to help you. There's just conventions, right, and sort of. Social norms around what it looks like to be a good maintainer, but there's no—I don't i I feel like um, I think a lot of people who publish something that then becomes popular, um, maybe maybe don't want to maintain it, or maybe don't have the time to maintain it. And I think there's a—you know—money helps. I think, um, but I think funding open source is is uh, is hard. Lot for lots of people, it isn't a day job to work on these things. And I think I don't know. I think we've—you know—there's there's not a good way yet apart from the very large open source projects of sort of handing something off to a different bunch of people, I think that's actually not very well solved for. I mean, you know, you see Twitter do it with some of their large open source projects that you know, put them in the Apache Software Foundation or something, but that's a, it's a whole different kind of scale of um, what it looks like to kind of look after an open source project, I think. I mean, Nadia, you've written a bunch about this, so I'm sure you've got a bunch of opinions on this as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you've really highlighted the, the kind of, the basis for the shift in open source which is that we've gone to a more traditional peer production model like if you read anything from Clay Shirky about peer production it's like you publish first and then you filter and and the culture around how you filter and how you figure that out is is actually the culture that defines um, you know what that peer production system looks like and in older open source like in order to get involved at all it was so hard that you basically internalized all of that culture and, and basically became you know a, a maintainer waiting in the wings and that's just not the world anymore like people publish that have no interest in maintaining things at all because everybody just publishes. That's the culture now, right? Yeah. Um, so I think I think we're we're actually going to come into a break now, but uh, when we get back, we're going to dive into what are those metrics of success? What are those metrics of health? Um, and, and how can we better define this?
5: Hey everyone, Adam Stachowiak here, Editor-in-Chief of ChangeLog, and I'm talking to a Rollbar customer. Rollbar puts errors in their place. Rollbar.com slash ChangeLog. Check them out. Get 90 days of the bootstrap plan totally for free. I had a conversation with Paul Bigger, the founder of CircleCI, and he talked deeply about how they use Rollbar and how important that tool is to their developers.
3: Take a listen. One of the key parts about doing continuous delivery, you don't just have to test your software, but you have to constantly keep track of it. You're going to be doing deploys 10 times a day or 20 times a day, and you have to know that each deploy works, and the way to do that is to have really good monitoring. And Rollbar is is literally the thing that you need to do that monitoring. You need to make sure that every time you deploy, you're going to get an alert if something goes wrong, and that's exactly what Rollbar does for, for CircleCI.
5: So obviously CI is important to your customers. You shouldn't have errors, you shouldn't have bugs. And the purpose of a CI is continuous delivery, obviously, but getting your customer's code to production in a fast manner that's tested and all the necessary things a CI provides. Tell me how important Rollbar is to your team in your organization?
3: We operate at serious scale. And literally the first thing we do when we create a new service is, is we install rollbar in it. Like we, we need to have that visibility. Uh, and without that visibility, it would be impossible to run at the scale we do. And certainly with the number of people that we have. Like we're a relatively small team operating a major service. And without the visibility that Robar gives us into our exceptions, it just, it just wouldn't be possible.
5: Oh, that's awesome. Thanks, Paul appreciate your time so listeners we have a special offer for you go to rollbar.com slash changelog sign up get the bootstrap plan for free for 90 days that's 300,000 errors tracked totally for free give rollbar a try today head over to rollbar.com slash changelog
1: and we're back um all right so so let's dive right into this um what are metrics that we can use for success? How can we use this data um, to show what the health of an open source project might be uh, and expose that to people? Uh, let's start. Let's start with Arfon since uh, we, we have so many new uh, metrics coming out of uh, this new
4: GitHub data. Uh, yeah. So I mean, well, I'll start by not answering your question directly, if you don't mind. I think like one thing I would love to see us like there are things that I can do, and anybody who's looked at enough open source software. You know, if you give somebody ten minutes, tell me if this project is doing well. You know, you can answer that question as a human, right? Like you can go and look at the repo. Maybe you find out they've got a Slack channel or a discussion board. You go and see how active that is. Um, you maybe go look at how many releases there were, how many open issues there are, how many pull requests that haven't been responded to in the last you know whatever three or four months. You know, you can kind of l- take a look at a project and get a reasonable. Feeling for whether it's doing well or not, and that I think is is the project healthy. I think that's what we can do as a as a as, a, as a, an experienced eye. Now, what that actually means in terms of like heuristics, like way the ways in which we could kind of codify that in terms of hard metrics, um, I think is is a, is a reasonably tough problem. Um, I don't think it's impossible by any stretch, um, but it's things like you know, is is this? Are, are there you know? we could we could make some up right now like are there commits coming landing in master like are pull requests being merged are issues being responded to and closed are uh, another one i'm particularly interested in and because I, I think this is pretty important for um the story we tell ourselves about open source about the kind of you know anyone can contribute uh, are all the contributions coming from the core team or are they coming from outside of the core team yes. um, there's, there's yes. one group that calls this like the de- democracy of a project like is it is it actually uh, a meritocracy is a dirty word these days but you know is it is it the community that's contributing to this thing or is it just three people who are actually rejecting it, the community's contributions ju- just working on their own stuff is it participatory right is, can people participate is it participatory like that's the question yeah yeah, yeah. How how open is this collaboration? Is the way I like to think of it. Like, is this actually? Because I, I think that's that's the promise we. That's the thing we tell ourselves, and that's one of the reasons that I think open source is is both a collaboration model and a set of licenses and you know uh, ways to think about IP. It is for me the most exciting thing about open source is, and actually about GitHub is that I think the the, the way in which collaboration can happen is very exciting you know you have permission to take a copy do some work and propose a change and then have that conversation happen in the open but um, you know that lots of people do that but they're actually working in their very small a very very small team or working together so actually a while ago i tried to measure some of this stuff on a few projects that i use and you can see quite clearly that some projects are terrible at merging community contributions they're absolutely appalling at it um and I can't name names. Some of them are incredibly popular languages. And uh, you, can name <laughs> you can name names. Say again. You can name names. <laughs> I totally won't. I'm absolutely not. It's uh it's like some of them are very poor. But then actually, um, so just to counter that, okay. So what does it mean if you are a very bad at merging contributions? Maybe that means your API is really robust and your software's really stable, right? Mm-hmm. Um like it's not clear that. Being very conservative about mo- merging pull requests is wrong. Um, yep. But it does mean that the community feels different, it does mean that the collaboration experience is... is
0: That's exactly what I wanted to kind of tease apart a little bit. Um, I just did a talk recently where I was um, looking at Rust versus Clojure and how both of those communities function. And they're really different. Um, Rust is like super participatory and Clojure is more BDFL. But one can make the argument that like both are still working um, and closure really prioritizes stability over anything else. And so that's why they're really careful about what they actually accept into um, as contributions. And so when I think about sort of like we talked about like popularity of projects and then we're talking now about like health of projects. And I think there's like two parts of it. One is around is this project active or like is it being actively worked on and um, I don't know, being kept up to date or and you can kind of look at like contribution activity there. Um, and then the other part is sort of like, is it participatory or is it collaborative? Um, does the community itself look positive, healthy, welcoming, whatever? Um, but those are two like pretty separate areas, in my opinion,
2: yeah. i've I've been looking into this a little bit as a way of kind of so libraries will sort all the search results by kind of a quality metric and try and filter out any ones that it thinks is bad. Uh, and one of the m- best metrics for that kind of, is this project dead isn't really the number of like the activity in the commits because if something is finished then mm-hmm. and it's especially if it's really kind of high level especially like a javascript thing that has no external dependencies probably doesn't need to change um so that doesn't necessarily mean because it's not been updated in a year it's particularly bad right but the amount of activity on the issue tracker so if there's actually Like what's the average time to response for a pull request or an issue is a really good indication of if there's actually someone on the other side of that project that can help, that can merge those pull requests if need be, which it may mean that the project doesn't need anything happening. But at least the support requests are being listened to uh, and it gives you a good indication of kind of if there was a security vulnerability found in this, would there be someone who could ship a new version? and the data in the package managers for the number of users that are available, I guess, is there's a lot of data that's locked up in package managers that never gets out about like, is this maintainer, do, do they log in regularly or do they kind of, are they even still around? Are they releasing anything would give you an indication of if that person is still there and cause that ends up being quite a, a point of, um, kind of a single point of failure. Often there'd be lots of people with a commit bit on GitHub, but not necessarily the ability to publish that via whatever package manager or even for the lower level things, push it out to something like apt or um yum. Is it yum on Red Hat? Uh which is an even smaller number of people for the project that could actually like publish whatever changes were merged in. Unless everyone is literally pulling from GitHub directly, which I don't think most kind of published software happens that way yet.
4: So my my prediction here is that the the people in the organizations that are going to solve this are going to be the ones that are paying most attention to like business users of open source. Uh, because if you're a CIO and you're thinking about like adopting, you know, starting to use open source more extensively in your organization. Then you know assessing the risk of that in terms of maintenance and like service agreements, uh, and you know an understanding of whether a project is if it does have a security vulnerability is likely to be patched. I think is 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 it's it's useful to know in open source generally. Like you know, is this should I use this library because is it is it likely to see updates when Rails five. Uh, is released, uh, or when you know something something happens, and can I use my favorite framework with this or favorite tool? Um, is that likely to happen? But um, but I think that's a very like you know that's that's useful to know, but it's not kind of bis- business critical. Um, I think the people who really want like a hard answer to this are more likely to be kind of business consumers of software. That's my prediction. I think there's actually a lot of opportunity mm-hmm. to do good stuff in this space.
2: The Linux Foundation a little bit around that with the what do they call it The core infrastructure, infrastructure project yeah. uh, where they're trying to see like has this project had a security review um and like when was the last time it was it was kind of checked for the people that are behind the project um which i guess is a much harder thing to do automatically you end up having to have kind of a set of humans that go out and contact other humans which if those people or anything like me on email that it may take ages to get a response. Whereas at least there is there's a fair number of metrics that we can kind of pull in automatically to give you a, a light indication of if this if if it, the project is healthy and uh I guess you have to split it in half again and kind of go like well what do I care about the project is this a the thing that I'm doing a throwaway kind of fun experiment or a learning exercise or is it something I'm going to be putting into production which then you kind of look have to look at things at very two different different sets of metrics
1: i, I think that the methodology that they used is is somewhat applicable here though the, i know a lot about the the cia i because i'm at the linux foundation and, and the node.js project was one of the first people to get the security badge um, and essentially what they did was they they came up with you know how do we do a really good survey on projects that are problematic, right? Like, do they have um, a security problem? And so they kind of went like, they, they asked some of the similar questions that we are, like what makes a project healthy? How do we define that? Then they went out and did this, you know, huge survey to, to identify all the projects that are having a problem. Um, then later what they did was they turned all of those things into like a, basically a badging program where it was a set of recommendations that you can do. And if you do all of these things, then, you know, you get this security badge. And so the node project was one of the launch partners of this, but it's, it's really simple stuff like have a private security, list, have a documented disclosure policy, have that on a website somewhere. Um, It sounds really, really basic, but the number of projects that are heavily dependent on that don't do that is surprisingly big. Um, And just having like a really basic set of things that people can go do that make people uh, feel better about their software and are actually good for the health of the project is like a really good set of recommendations that that we could come up with that would actually be based on kind of metrics and and some really good methodology.
0: Um, I'm curious to kind of move this a little bit to thinking about analytics from a maintainer's point of view. So, if you're a maintainer and yeah, you, you have a project, project that's popular, what should they be measuring for their projects? What do you think they should be paying attention to at a high level? Do you want to have uh, a go at that,
2: Andrew? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, someone asked me a question the other day on Twitter, uh, which they, they were wondering for a given library that they were maintaining what were the the versions of that library that people depended on uh they wanted to see for the kind of 500 other projects that depended on it what versions were they using because they wanted to kind of get an idea of which things could they deprecate which thing as mike was saying earlier like we want to know the actual uh like pain points here and if people are stuck on an old version and how can we move them forward so that we can drop some old code or we can kind of clean up something that we we don't like anymore um and that data is is fairly easy to get although trying to kind of lump that in together with like semver ranges uh ends up kind of going like oh they depend on something around this version as opposed to something very specific uh but having that actual usage data around the versions, which for some package managers would give you the data of a particular download for a version as well. So you can see like, oh, this thing looks completely dead. No one's no one's downloading this anymore as opposed to uh, kind of like the the last two releases are really heavily downloaded. Um, and you can get that data from RubyGems. I don't think NPM has download data on a per version basis, at least publicly available uh and for other smaller package managers it's kind of all over the place whereas at least on github you can kind of go you you could assume everyone is looking at the default branch uh but then also looking into the forks is something that maintainers might want to do to be able to kind of go are people kind of forking this off and changing things manually where they they haven't wanted to contribute back or why didn't they contribute back uh it definitely seems to me come down to kind of very human questions as opposed to kind of like what versions of uh node are people running when they're using my library it's more kind of like how can i help these people either move forwards onto a newer version or like what are the what are the exceptions that they're having that I never see? So they're, I was talking to uh, the guy at Bugsnag who do kind of exception tracking. And they collect a lot of exception data that actually is thrown up by an open source library. And they see in the stack trace like, oh, this error has come from uh, Rack, for example. Uh, and it, like, they were investigating if they could use or at least ask for permission for users to, to report that error exception tracking data like this line of your source code is causing lots of people lots of exceptions for whatever reason uh which i thought was quite interesting i don't think they've actually got around to doing that yet though.
4: yeah i'm also interested in the sort of uh i guess the the types of roles of people on your project as well so one of the projects i uh, maintain for github is uh, called linguist which is actually one of our more popular open-source projects, uh, and it does the language detection on GitHub. So it's kind of a somewhat self-service project. Like if you have a, if a new language springs up in the community uh, and you want to, um, if you want GitHub to, to recognize it and maybe syntax highlight it, then you need to come along and add that to linguist. And uh, for the longest time, it's been myself and one of the GitHub are uh, kind of merging pull requests. And we you know, just realized that, you know, the rate at which the project was able to move and be responsive was actually really severely limited by our attention and so kind of went and looked at who'd committed or who'd kind of made the best pull requests and been most responsive on the project in the past six 12 months and actually just made a couple of those people uh, gave them commit rights um to master uh we we've got a little bit of kind of policy around who gets to do releases still just because it's kind of coupled to our kind of production environment but you know doing that has just breathed new life into the project and i think one of the things that was not not straightforward but you can get it from like the pulse page and to see who's committing most who's got like the most commits in master in the last year or two it's just you know paying attention to who's active on your project and then thinking about their role i think is it's not a kind of hard metric but it's you know thinking thinking about um who's around and who actually is really understands and cares about the project and has been has been contributing, I think is um I don't know, it's just really just reflecting on that. It's only a few weeks that we've been doing it, but it's been really successful so far. Um and it's kind of really put a shot in the arm in terms of energy of the of the project.
2: My approach with open source projects that I maintain like that is based off uh, Felix Geisendorfer's blog post, which is mm. I guess a couple of years ago, where he basically just goes, if someone sends me a pull request, I'm just gonna add him as a, a contributor. Because what's the worst that could happen if they, they merge something I don't like, then I can just back it out. Um, right. Yeah. And yeah, later on, maybe give them uh, kind of release rights when they've kind of proved themselves a little bit, that they're not going to go crazy, which seems to work really well. So you get a lot more kind of initial contributions. And those people might not stay around for very long, but you see like a spike of activity.
1: Well, and, and that really developed in the Node community, too. So eventually that turned into, you know, open, open source and, and more liberal contribution agreements. And, and it's really the basis for now Node Core's policies as well. Um, so there's, there's been a lot of iteration there on, you know, how you liberalize access uh, and committer rights and stuff like that.
2: It'd be quite interesting to have GitHub actually go like, oh, you've, this is the third pull request you've received from this person. You should consider adding them as a collaborator so they can kind of mm. do this themselves. Yeah, yeah in,
1: in, in, the, in the Node project, we do a roll-up every uh, month um, just to show like, okay, these are the people that merge a lot of stuff, and then there's a note next to them if they're a committer or not so that they can get onboarded if they're not. Um, and that's kind of how we, we base the, the nominations. So if that was automatically integrated
2: in GitHub, it would save me so much time uh, <laughs> having to
1: run those scripts and post those issues. It'd be
2: fantastic. I think Ruby on Rails runs a leaderboard as well of the total number of commits into the, into any of the Rails projects uh and you can kind of see a little star next to the ones who are currently rails core uh so it kind of gamifies it a little bit which i don't know if that's a good thing or not i guess it as long as it's kind of people actually doing stuff for the contributions rather than just to get up the leaderboard
0: i think it'd be cool to see that for other types of contributions too like people that are really active in issues or people that are like doing a lot of triaging work or whatever um, i hear that from people of like, well, I also want to recognize all these other people that are falling through the cracks or that we don't always see.
4: Right. Yeah. And so we did this um blog post recently um called The Shape of Open Source that kind of just shows really clearly the difference between the um you know the the the, the, the types of activities around a project as the contributor pool grows. Um, and you can see that, you know, the 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 like the lion's share of the the activity um, goes from uh, you know commits if it's just a solo project to actually um, you know comments on code, uh, so like pull requests uh, in pull requests to so actual code review, but then just comments on pull requests and issues and replies to those issues. So it kind of just demonstrates that projects kind of transition to a lot of you know a lot of it becomes user support and that's a ton of work uh and uh, and you know something that i think um the sort of that what that contributor role is i think is something that you know there's been some nice nice thinking going around that but i don't think it's yet kind of baked itself into changes in the way products like github actually work
1: well and and so sort of trying to wind this down a little bit and look m- more towards the future, are there any trends like that that you see actually growing over time i I guess I'd, I'll ask this to to both of you like um we've talked a lot about what the data looks like right now. If you look at the data now compared to last year or compared to the year before, what are the the biggest kind of growth areas uh in in terms of what this data looks like
2: uh, well for me there's there's an accelerating number of packages everywhere across every package manager that is kind of in a language that is still very active like Perl, has slowed down a little bit but most package managers seem to continue to gain more and more code like there's just more choice and more software to to kind of keep track of and to choose which which things that you should use there's never just like oh there's the one obvious choice for this thing uh It feels like it's reaching a point where kind of the Internet happened uh, uh, 10, 15 years ago where the Yahoo curated homepage was no longer useful because they couldn't keep up with the amount of things that they were like putting in. So we have the equivalent in awesome lists where people are manually adding stuff. It's like the kind of the Yahoo directory of the Internet, where as you need something like Google to come along, go, actually, here's the things that are like going to solve your problems um and the dependency graph does give you something like page rank to be able to go like here if we used uh, a combination of kind of links to that either the github page or the npm page and dependencies from actual software projects you'd end up with a good picture of the things that are the most considered uh to be useful i guess uh which is something that i've tried started kind of trying to put in but there's a it's a huge amount of work to kind of keep on top of and to to build ads like essentially google again but for software
4: right and um i know clay shirky's been mentioned once already on this today but let's let's mention him again he's got this kind of you know the problem is filter failure not information overload i think like currently all of what we talked about today is like it's hard to find the right thing because the volume of open source software is is you know growing growing exponentially so um yeah i think i i think it's sort of almost becoming standard to sort of hear some of these conversations happening now people are like yeah but like how can we measure health how can we like how can we know whether a project's doing well um and so i i don't um, how's the data changing? I don't know that the data are changing necessarily that much. I think I, I think Homebrew's like adding that, the metrics to capture usage. I think was really like I think that's a really good step in the right direction because I think some some of this is there's data missing that we don't necessarily have, uh, and it would be better to have kind of more explicit measures of of you know consumption use of open source. Um, I think the other part of it. I think the biggest change that I'm seeing is that the conversation is 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 moving pretty fast, and I think um, that to me speaks that of you know a demand, uh, an understa- a better understanding of the problem generally in the community. And I think that means that we're likely to see kind of product changes and improvements um, that help solve some of the really common the common issues for people.
0: Can't wait. <laughs>
4: me neither. Yeah, that's great. That's I'm
2: excited. there's a lot of people working on that kind of area as well I've seen did you see the uh, software heritage project that was released yesterday I think uh, which could so far they're just collecting stuff but building those kinds of tools on top of all of that like the internet archive of software could be a really powerful way for collecting those metrics and making them distributed uh, out into allowing people to do interesting things on top of them Yes. And I think we'll leave it there. Thank you all for
1: coming on so much. This was amazing.
4: Cool. Thanks for the conversation.
2: Great. Thanks very much.